This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, everyone you are listening to evidence for faith this is the christian apologetics radio show that helps christians become thinkers and thinkers become christians hello everyone i'm dr mike larrakis and with me today is author kirk hastings hello kirk hi mike glad to have you back again thank Uh, you kirk has been uh pinch hitting for keith um uh or if i'm out he'll pinch it for me uh, we have him on a on the show on a regular basis because he is a uh, an accomplished author. He wrote uh, a book uh, about two years ago now, Kirk. Uh, yeah, just two, about two years. Two now. years ago, and it's entitled "What Is Truth?" Yep, uh, famous quote by Pontius Pilate himself. And yep. uh, Kirk does a nice, nice job as an introductory uh, level apologetics book, which takes into consideration many of the topics that we talk about on this show. So, Kirk, I'd like to welcome you again. we got a, a terrific show lined up today. We're going to talk about evolution, and we're going to talk strictly about the facts that support or don't support evolution. We're going to try to frame this in the context of, um, of being evidentialists as opposed to creationists or mm-hmm. materialists or secular humanists. We're going to try to frame this in the context of science alone and see where the scientific evidence takes us. And if you can um, think about anything, folks, and I'm talking to you, the listening audience right now, if you can think of anything that would um, support the argument of evolution above that of, let's say, an intelligent design um, concept, uh, we'd like you to call us and give us your thoughts. You can call us at 398-1020. And uh, we'll be happy to field your call and see if we can answer your question and try to frame this in the context of science only. This is not a religious discussion. This is going to be a scientific uh, endeavor. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would like everyone to um, uh, know right off the bat before we get started is that this program is being supported in part by Grace Community Church in Winslow Township, uh, Waterford Works. Uh, You can visit their website, uh, check it out, aplaceforgrace.org. That's a place for the number four grace.org likewise our website uh, can be accessed it's called evidence for the number four faith evidence for faith.com and uh, you can listen to any of our previous uh, radio shows that you may have missed uh, in the past and uh, towards the end of this uh, program i'm going to um, suggest a, f- a few of the shows that we've done in the past that specifically deal with the sciences uh, with specifically a debate that we had with a Stockton uh, uh, University professor and also a geneticist uh, that was interviewed um, uh, about a year ago. So uh, we will um, suggest some resources towards the end of our discussion, or we might bring them up as, the, uh, uh, as time allows us uh, while we're going through uh, this body of uh, work and this body of evidence. So, Kirk, if I had to ask you, who was your favorite author along these lines, um, along the lines of, let's say, intelligent design, who would you say uh, that would be beside yourself? Beside myself, okay. (laughs) Uh, I would have to say definitely a man named Philip Johnson who wrote a book 
a few years ago called Darwin on Trial. Correct. I believe it was 1992 that was yes. published. He's um, written three or four books since then, but that was his first major publication. Right. And a little bit of background on, on Philip Johnson. Uh, he is a law professor at uh, the University of Berkeley in California, uh-huh. and uh, he's actually written a number of uh, books. He, he's written uh, not only Darwin on Trial, which is his most uh, famous work, but he also wrote Reason in the Balance and mm-hmm. Defending um, Dar- I'm sorry, Defeating Darwinism, not Defending Darwinism, Defeating Darwinism. Right. Uh, and he makes some pretty, pretty sound um, um, arguments uh, that would um, make Darwin probably roll over in his grave. Now, everyone realized that Charles Darwin did promote his, uh, uh, his theories um, in 1859. So it's almost 151 years ago that his uh, work, The Origin of the Species, was written. Mm-hmm. And in all fairness to Charles Darwin, when he wrote that work, he did not try to, do, to explain in a scientific fashion how it is that life came into being. Okay, what he tried to do was show in his Tree of Life uh, a materialistic way to explain why it is that uh, species would come into existence and then go on to evolve into a more uh, complicated um, uh, organism or animal, if you mm-hmm. will. So Yes, it's interesting that his, the title of his book is The Origin of Species, but he really doesn't deal with the specific idea of where the species came from in his book. That is correct. He deals with how they changed through time. That's correct. But not where they originally came from. Right. Now, the, in all fairness to Charles Darwin, he was not a geneticist. In fact, genet- genetics was in its most basic form mm-hmm. at that point in time. In fact, it was 20 or so years earlier that uh, Mendel was actually doing his experiments with peas and so forth. Uh, the Mendelian experiments are something that we learned about in high school science, and that had to do with, you know, blue eyes, brown eyes, uh, uh, brown hair, and that sort of thing, you know, where you have the double B for brown eyes uh, in capitals, and then the uh, the two small Bs for blue eyes, and then you, you get the various crisscrossing and, and genetic traits of the offspring. I think that we all remember those uh, types of problems that we dealt with in, in high school. Oh, yeah. But I have nightmares about that. Genetics <laughs> genetics has evolved uh, in a tremendous fashion since that time with the mapping of the human genome almost six, uh, six years ago. Right. And um, um, just a, a whole lot of things that... Uh, and that microbiology has come a long way in the last 20, 30 years. Correct. And what we're trying to do is lay some background, folks, of this this uh, genetics uh, argument uh, with, with Watson and Crick being the co-discoverers uh, of DNA um, and the double helical design. But even still, the amount of genetics knowledge over the last 60 years has exploded, and the complexity of that um, molecule itself is just incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to think that that happened uh, with time and chance and and random um, uh, events during the course of, of the world's history or the galaxy's history or the universe's history is just mind-boggling mm-hmm. to think that uh, all of this could have started in a, in a primordial soup. Um, and then I might also mention, too, that the uh, sciences of, like, archaeology and uh, paleoanthropology and all that were all in their infancy, too, when Darwin wrote his book. Correct. The fossil record, there really wasn't much around at that point. Right. Although he did know about the Cambrian explosion, and he knew that there were, there were some inherent pitfalls uh, that might actually cause his theory to be in crisis. Mm-hmm. And... 
He actually admits in quite a few places in his book that the possibility that he might be wrong about this or he right, you know, he might be wrong about that. He really uh, is not. Uh, I wouldn't call him, you know, totally dogmatic or anything. He, he really, it, in his span of of life, he he kind of understood, I think, that what he was coming up with was a fairly new idea, and there were possibilities that at least parts of it could be disproven in the future. But unfortunately, many scientists today are not that open-minded. They've well, decided this is the way it is. It can't ever be any other way. I don't care what the evidence you know, that we discover in the future is. This is how it must be. Right. And you, we you will, don't necessarily see that attitude in Darwin himself. Well, we're, we're talking about a philosophy there. And we will get into that because that is actually shaping the way science is performed in the laboratory and in the publications. Right. And that has to do with uh, uh, materialism and philosophical naturalism, which is what the the religion, if you will, of secular humanism is. And this is what's right. being taught to our children in school. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, looking at Darwin himself, um, it's interesting. If you read Philip's, Philip Johnson's works, uh, he will say that uh, there, there were four major thought leaders in the 20th century. Okay, mm-hmm. that really shaped the way the university and the academic institutions would teach the next generation and the ongoing future generations. Mm-hmm. And they were Darwin, and then there was Nietzsche, the mm-hmm. philosopher, mm-hmm. and then there was Karl Marx and uh, Sigmund Freud. Now, during the course of this past century, uh, and, and I'm quoting him now, he says that Darwin actually supplied the murder weapon, Okay, and we're talking about the murder weapon for God as the intelligent designer. Right. Nietzsche actually made the pronouncement that God was dead. Okay. You mean Time Magazine didn't start that? <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, Karl Marx, uh, we know that he he has the uh, the economic theory uh, and the that, political and social thought. Right. That has driven implications of God not existing. Right. And and of course uh, that would drive a lot of the societal norms, especially in Europe, even now in a postmodern Europe. Yeah. Uh, the principles of Marxism are firmly entrenched there and trying to sneak into uh, this country. And then finally, well, I don't think they're sneaking, and I think they're barging the door down. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm I'm trying to be a little gentle, uh, Kirk. Uh, okay. <laughs> but I'm I'm not going to argue with you. In fact, Philip Johnson will tell you that in there there are basically three strongholds of of Marxism in this country, and that would be in Cambridge, Massachusetts, of course, with Harvard being one of the thought leaders there. Uh, Berkeley, California, which is where he's a law professor, so he knows. Yeah. And would it surprise you if I told you that Duke University and the Research Triangle in North Carolina had the most socialists registered to vote? Yeah, actually it would. I haven't heard that one. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually been printed. I've read that. I've but, heard of Berserkly many times, though. Berserkly? <laughs> that's what they California? call it now. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, he talks about why it is that this Darwinian theory would be in crisis. Now, Kirk, give me a little little insight. Why do you think that Darwinian... Uh, thought, the theory of evolution and uh, natural selection would be in crisis now. Is there is there a major conflict between what science is telling us, what it's showing us, and what the uh, uh, philosophical naturalists are trying to espouse? I think there is. I think there's a broad uh, gap between the two. And okay. unfortunately, I don't think it's a necessary gap myself, but of course I'm sure many scientists and people would disagree with that but 
yeah, there's there's a gap that seems to be getting wider and wider all the time. On the one side, uh, if I can put this in somewhat modern terms, on the one side there is the idea of intelligent design mm-hmm. that everything that we see was created by an intelligence of some kind, which of course, you know, uh, Christians and people that believe in the Bible say it's the God of the Bible. And the other side that says that everything is uh, came about by random chance, that there is no intelligence behind it. It simply took uh, a mix of things that uh, came together over millions and billions of years, and we simply got all the different random uh, things that we have today. And there really is no way to reconcile those two views. You either have, you know, an intelligence behind everything or a lack of intelligence behind everything. And there's no middle ground. All right. So there's either random chance happenings with material and time and laws. Which is called naturalism or materialism by science today. Or materialistic naturalism. Right. And this is actually what's proposed uh, by the secular humanists uh, in, in today's university setting. And really, I don't know how many people realize that secular humanism, if they've never heard that term before, that is actually a, uh, was judged a few years ago by the Supreme Court that it is a system of religious thought, which is based on the idea that God does not exist. Right. It's, in other words, it's based on atheism. And that naturalism and materialism is the scientific outgrowth of that belief. Yeah, let's let's tease that apart a little bit right now. Let's let's give a a pure definition of science, okay? Okay. And then we're going to a good place to start. And then we're going to talk about uh, the naturalists, um, the materialists' definition of science. But let's start with okay. the, bu- the pure definition of science. Okay. Uh, and this is um, according to Philip Johnson, by the way. And and of course, I think that it would be a fair statement that most academics would agree with this statement. Science is based upon impartial, factual, repeatable investigations and observations that is fair and open to free deliberation of all ideas and follows the evidence where it leads. And it's also reproducible in other scientific laboratories and settings Mm -hmm. so that it can be confirmed and basically put forth as irrefutable. Okay? I remember being taught in elementary school that science is, is... Observation, experiment, something that can be experimented on, and something that um, is repeatable. Those right. are the three qualities of that's, science. That's correct. Okay, now the, the problem that we get into uh, with this materialism and uh, naturalism and secular humanism, they've actually redesigned the scientific uh, definition of sorts. Okay. And basically they're saying that the, the science is devoted as a principle of reason to a prejudice that's already inherent to materialism because it starts with the laws and particles of nature that are in motion and then chance and then law-driven behavior so Mm -hmm. that with chance and time plus natural law, these substitute now for a designer and consequently you don't have something that's necessarily showing you what it should be. We have a problem with the definition of pure science in that it's already prejudicial. 
In other words, mm-hmm. they, they're trying to hammer home a a square peg into a round hole because they already have a, a prejudice with respect to where the evidence would lead, and that would be intelligent design. Their prejudice, of course, is that only things that are material, that's the the only things that exist are material things. There is nothing beyond that. Correct. And we're not ready to even consider any evidence to the contrary. Right. So there, there is a basic problem with the way their scientific data is presented and interpreted. Now, right. likewise, they could make the same claims for you and me, that we're looking through it through the lens of people who believe in creationism, Mm-hmm. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to state emphatically today that we're going to be talking about evidential stuff instead of creationist stuff. We're just going to look at the evidence, mm-hmm. the hard science behind what we're going to talk about. Not necessarily something out of the Bible or some other... Not uh, using religious ideas, no. but scientific ideas. Right. And really, in my book, What is Truth, that's the basis upon which I build the uh, the progression in my book, is I... Um, I kind of reiterate the way that I came to believe in an intelligent designer in that I grew up with no religion. I wasn't taught any religion by my parents or whatever, never went to church, and really didn't have any any basis or uh, bias one way or the other as to whether any religions were true or none of them were true or whatever. And I decided that I really wanted to know what does the evidence tell us? about these kinds of things. You know, is it really true that we came about by accident over millions of billions of years, or did God create things, or is it like part of one and part of the other? I really was pretty much open to finding whatever reason would bring me to. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that uh, my search in that direction, and really I started out not paying much attention to what religion said, but what science showed me. And I came to the conclusion that the Bible was right, that there is an intelligent designer. Okay. So So. the the real question of the day, and we're going to try to answer this question, is can non-living chemicals spontaneously combine to form a complex living organ or organism? Right. If you feel strongly one way or the other, folks, we'd like to hear from you. You can call us at 398-1020. Uh, hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. I'm Kirk Hastings, and it's good guest to, host for the week. Good to have you folks uh, listening uh, on this uh, Sunday afternoon. Now, <clears throat> if I were a university student, Kirk, and I I asked a university biology professor that question: Can non-living chemicals really spontaneously combine to form a complex living organ or organism? He would look at me dumbfounded and say, of but of course, course yeah. that's a dumb question. Yeah. Of course, that's a given. Right. But I remember in high school, I learned about something called spontaneous generation. Uh-huh. Okay. And that was disproven uh, in the 1830s. It's my understanding that we do have a caller on the line. Hello, caller. Identify yourself. Hello. No, we must have lost them. Um, they might call back 398-1020. But anyway, if I were to ask that question in a university setting, I would probably be ostracized because there's no room for uh, any other option. Yes, of right. course. It's a stupid question. You can't right. assume that anything else happened. How do we know that? We're here. 
The flowers are here. The trees are here. The animals are here. You and I are sitting here. But yet, when in I other look, words, existence proves itself. <laughs> but when I look around the studio and I'm thinking to myself, okay, we're getting these thoughts and ideas out to millions of people. And I see a couple of computers sitting in front of our sound engineer, Tom. And I see a tremendously complex headset sitting on your your head mm-hmm. and a big microphone stick, sticking in your mouth. And all <laughs> of this gadgetry that was clearly designed for a purpose. Okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, I understand our caller is back. Hello, caller. Identify yourself. How you doing? Good. Uh, I think the, the question is, a lot of times, is not so much whether there is a God or there's not a God or whether we got here by Adam and Eve or we got here by uh, uh, evolution. I think um, sometimes it's a matter of uh, uh, the, the characteristic of God himself. Uh, in the light that uh, your top religious leaders such as Billy Graham, I guess there's a few others, their main theme, as I have listened to them in the past, is that God is a God of love. I think you, you'll agree with that. Indeed. Um, now, if you connect that with what we've seen just in the last week or two, uh, here we've had um, uh, 29 uh, workers uh, killed just by going to their job. They were killed inside of a mine. And then we had 11 more killed a couple of days ago out on the ocean uh, just going to their job or drilling oil. That's 40. And then uh, yesterday we had 10 killed in their home just by being home. That's 50 killed. So I guess the question a lot of people would throw out is uh, not so much whether he exists or not, but if he's a God of love, why would he stand by and let these horrible things happen to people? Okay, that's a great question, and we've mm-hmm. heard this question many times before. Actually, that's a you know, basic uh, question that many people have. We we have actually uh, dedicated uh, one whole show to this pressing question, um, and what I would suggest is that you uh, go to our website. It's Evidence for Faith. That's the number four. Evidence the number four faith dot com, and uh, just scroll down through the uh, seventy or so titles that you'll see. And the the title of that one is, Why is it that bad things happen to good people if there is a loving God? Um, And, you know, unfortunately, many many of these things have to do with um, uh, choices that people make and uh, other factors that are way beyond our control. But from a a, uh, biblical perspective, you have to remember that uh, uh, the prince of the air is ruling uh, at the ground level. Okay, our discussion today has to do with uh, the science behind evolution and uh, really whether or not uh, uh, there's an intelligent designer uh, behind that. But thank you for Mm -hmm. your question. That's Uh, really, like you said, that's a whole other show in itself, answering that question that he just asked. Probably more than one show. (laughs) So, but anyway, uh, getting back to um, uh, the topic at hand... um, Kirk, I, you, you mentioned to me earlier that if you had to look at scientific evidences behind um, intelligent design or, or at least a scientific evidence that would refute evolution, let's say from a primordial soup point of view, uh, we talked about spontaneous generation a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and Pasteur was the one that uh, uh, proved that uh, there was no such thing as spontaneous generation. And I think that yes. most scientists will adhere to that, and this goes back to the 1830s. Um, so it's it's very hard for anybody to argue that we came from 
uh, the primordial soup. One of the arguments that I give along those lines, too, is if you took uh, 10 frogs and put them in a wearing blender and blenderized the whole mess and you created your own primordial soup, you'd have right. all the ingredients necessary with all the genetics, the eyeballs, the, the kidneys, the... Uh, the bladder, the intestines, the brain, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And if you let it sit there for 10 million years, what would you have? You'd still have a gooey mess. No, probably. It, would pr it would probably be a dry <laughs> dust. Yeah. But, it, but even if you put it in a controlled environment at, let's say, 80 degrees or 85 degrees, whatever the, the optimal temperature is to incubate mm -hmm. that mess, and uh, um, put preservatives in the soup so that it didn't decay, right. would, in fact, 10 million years later, would you have frogs jumping out of the blender? I highly doubt it. Probably not. So something. I've also heard a good example that when you take a person, uh, if you walk into a funeral home and you look at a person who has recently died, when you're looking at that person, everything that is necessary for life is there in that person, but they're no longer alive. Mm. So having the ingredients for life in and of itself is not enough to generate life. There's something else besides just having the ingredients. Mm. Yeah, in the early 50s, 1953, I'm surprised nobody's called in about this, the Mueller experiment uh, occurred and it created a lot of uh, sensational news in 53 and 54 uh, where they took uh, the basic ingredients of, of uh, molecules in life, you know, some methane, some, some uh, carbon, some oxygen, and so forth. The chemicals that they believe existed in the primordial earth. Exactly. And they sparked electrical current across these gases and so forth. And they came up with some rudimentary um, uh, chemicals that really did not last that long in the laboratory, despite the fact that they were trying to control um, the environment within the glass flask itself. Right. So they felt that this was enough evidence to show that uh, complex molecules could be formed in a laboratory setting. Right. Now that But there are two rational problems with that experiment. Number one is they've since found that the chemicals that they thought existed in the early earth are not what they thought they were when they did that experiment. Mm. So that in itself... Uh, causes that experiment to not work anymore. And the other ingredient is, when you think about it, this was an, an intelligent scientist who was doing this experiment and putting all these ingredients together and creating the conditions under which this happened. Are you saying that he was an intelligent designer? I'm saying that this experiment was more of an example of an intelligent designer causing this to happen rather than the opposite. Okay, I, I, your you point had is, a thinking person behind all of this, your point or it is, wouldn't have happened on its own. Your point is very well taken, and I, I agree with that. And at the time, no one recognized that right. contradiction. Now, Kirk, if we, if we took that same experiment and said that it was a, a, a robust success on the part of science, okay, mm -hmm. and said that, okay, we have been able to recreate in a laboratory setting complex uh, chemical matter out of nothing, just with a, a spark, okay, and the ingredients. There are a couple of things that don't allow these things to stay together very long. I mean, there, there are a lot of factors that go into it. Mm -hmm. But specifically, I'm, I'm looking for the second law of thermodynamics. Can you tell me what that's all about? Well, actually, uh, you have kind of the first and second laws of thermodynamics operating here. The one which says that 
neither matter or energy can be created or destroyed. Right. It's constant. The amount it's, of energy and, and, and matter right. in the universe remains constant. It can change from one to the other, but the total amount stays the same. Correct. And the other one is that all energy in the universe is in the process of winding down or cooling off. Okay. This is the concept of entropy. And right. this is the second law of thermodynamics, saying right. that it's going from a, a state of higher order to a state of lesser order or right. decay. We can or use chaos. Decay, right, leading towards uh, chaos, exactly. Yet evolution would have us believe the opposite, that we started with chaos and we're ending up with... Um, order. Order. Right. Okay. So what you're saying is that evolutionary theory flies in the face of the second law of thermodynamics. Yes. Okay. What the is first the first and second law? Right. What really, the, when you get down to it, what's the difference between a law and a theory? Can you tell me that? Yes, a theory is uh, an idea that hasn't been scientifically proven. Correct. A law is something that has been scientifically observed and experimented on over and over and over again, and we always come up with the same result. Okay. Right. A There's law. There's never been an exception to this. In a other law words. is considered universal fact, no matter where you are in the universe. Right. Okay. Whereas a theory is yet to be proven. And Darwin's theory of evolution is being taught as fact in school, not right. as a theory. So by many people, yes. So this this has to this is a point that I'm I'm happy to make and, and people have to realize that Darwinian theory and the theory of evolution uh, is really the only thing that secular humanists have to rely on. Right. Because they have no other explanation as to how life got here in the first place. Um, even if in a kind of weird way, it, it kind of makes sense. If you do automatically cut God out of the equation or an intelligent designer, then what you're left with is this idea of evolution. That's the only other reasonable course for you to take. The problem is, as we've already mentioned, there's an inherent bias in this, in that you're cutting God out of the equation to begin with before you check the evidence out to see whether does the evidence show that there could have been a god or an intelligent designer involved in this or not. Right. You're assuming that there isn't. Correct. What, what the assumption is here is that evolutionary processes are mindless. It has everything to do with chance, mm -hmm. the chance of one particle coming into contact with another, mm -hmm. the laws of the universe, time, and I should say lots of time because typically you hear the term millions or billions of years. Lots of time. Okay, and because of this time that's allotted to the theory that the scientists are able to explain away uh, any probability that the mathematicians might throw at them and say, well, you know, mathematically that's impossible or mm -hmm. highly improbable. Mm -hmm. But then they'll say, well, with, with millions of years it can happen. Okay, and that's how they, they exclude the, uh, the mathematical probabilities of mm -hmm. these things happening. Um, you know, Richard Dawkins, um, who is the uh, arch enemy of anybody who would espouse intelligent design, mm -hmm. uh, he states that uh, biology is the study of complex things which look as if they were designed for a purpose. Okay? Uh, it's interesting that he would concede that. Uh, that's an interesting statement. Tell me what you mean by concede that point. That even he's making, the, he's suggesting the idea, well, this stuff looks designed. Well, I, I so how do you know that it isn't designed? Well, I think he's actually nervous because there are a lot of scientists who are jumping on the bandwagon of intelligent design 
because they realize that there are so many flaws inherent to Darwin's theory of evolution. That's possible. And uh, that's kind of leaving a crack in the door for them. Right. So, um, but, you know, Darwinism is the only plausible alternative to the materialists, the naturalists, the secular humanists. They, mm-hmm. they have nothing else to hang their hat on because they're right. admitted uh, atheists. And really, okay. I think they're giving long spans of time a little too much credit. They're, they're really saying if you have enough time, anything is possible. Actually, they are saying that. They've said that in so many words. And yet, how that in itself to me is not a scientific statement. How can you prove that? Right. How can you prove that anything, given enough time, will come about on its own? Right. And the answer is you can't. There's never <clears throat> been an experiment or anything that's ever shown that that can happen. That's more a philosophical statement than a scientific statement. And what I think a lot of people don't understand today is a lot of things that scientists say today are not scientific. Just because they're a scientist doesn't mean that everything they say is scientific. They can uh, state things that are philosophical in nature or imaginative or speculative or whatever, just the same as anyone else. We need to be able to separate their opinions from their scientific statements, which are not always the same thing. And here, here is the question, uh, Kirk, that you can actually push somebody against the wall uh, when they're making a philosophical argument as opposed to a scientific argument. You can right. ask them, is the evidence of science pointing us to intelligent design or Darwinian evolution? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, when you and I look at the evidence as evidentialists, we see the thumbprint of God all over it. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when you look at the complexity of the DNA molecule, okay? And and I've always said that the Human Genome Project, when it was completed in, what, six years ago, uh, it has the thumbprint of God on it, all over it, because mm-hmm. the human genome is so complex, and what it creates is just incredibly complex. And remember, every, every ounce of that genetic material re- resides in every cell, and more importantly, it resides in the germ cells, the germ cells are the future progeny, okay? The germ cells are the actual DNA that are left when you were conceived in your mother's womb, a certain amount of that uh, DNA was sent to the germ cells, that is your, the the future sperm cells that you would actually produce when you became a man, Mm -hmm. okay? Likewise, in the living female, her germ cells were already allocated with the genetic material. So the problems with Darwinian evolution are compounded by the fact that the germ cells themselves would actually have to mutate, okay, in advance of any outside force trying to direct them in a way that Darwin and his proponents espouse. Mm-hmm. And that's actually impossible because they're, they're the forces of evolution and by the way, folks, we really have to make a distinction here between microevolution and macroevolution. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Kirk and I—that's an important point. Both believe that microevolution happens. Okay, right. This is the peppered moth experiment. This is the finch beak experiment that Darwin observed very elega- elegantly on the Galapagos Islands in his original work. In other words, living things have the ability within a certain set of parameters to adapt to their environments. That is correct. That happens all the time. Right. And we call that microevolution. Right. Macroevolution, on the other hand, is leaping to a completely different organism or animal. 
Okay. In other words, saying that a, a new species can arise from an existing species. Correct. That's completely different from the original. That's right. That's a totally different idea than, uh, for instance, a germ being able to uh, generate a defense against... Uh, Penicillin, a, yes, so to speak. A medicine that's, you know, that we use to fight it. Sometimes a germ or a virus or whatever can mutate a defense against that but that's not the same thing it's still a virus it doesn't change into something completely different whereas scientists today are saying a rock given enough time can turn into a human being well i'd like to back up the ship a little bit since i'm a doc and i want to make a comment about uh, uh, germs that are resistant to penicillin uh-huh. it's because the germ has lost genetic information that allows it to um, um, be susceptible to the penicillin. Okay. Okay. That's a now, good way of putting it. Now, here, here's what happened, though. A loss of genetic information occurred. That was the mutation that allowed the germ to be resistant to the penicillin. Right. So the problem it's here... It's not something that it gains that makes it uh, not susceptible. It's something that it's losing. That's correct. And all mutations, and here's the other thing that speaks so so... Uh, powerfully against the Darwinistic theory, all mutations are a loss of genetic information. Right. There's no new information that's generated, okay? Right. And from a, a physician's perspective, when I see a mutation in real life, mm-hmm. I see disease, death, and deformity. Those are the that's three options. That's why almost all, uh, all examples of this are, uh, how should I put it, detrimental that, that is correct. Almost all mutations are in a worse state than they were before. Right. And I'm frequently reminded of the G6PD deficiency that allows for the sickle cell anemia people in Africa uh, to be more um, uh, hardy against malaria. Mm-hmm. And the argument there, and I, and I throw this right back at them, I say, you know what? Sickle cell anemia is a bad disease. It causes bone infarcts. It causes um, spleen problems, blood problems. Mm-hmm. People die from sickle cell anemia. Uh, this is not a good mutation, okay? No, it causes the breakdown of bodily systems, which it, is not a good thing. It does. and, it, and At least not from our point of view, it is. Correct, and I, I don't believe that it has anything to do with survival of, of um, uh, African people and makes them more resistant to malaria. Right. But um, this, this is a constant thing that's thrown up um, uh, as an argument for a good beneficial mutation. Yeah. So, but anyway, we're we're you are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis with author Kirk Hastings. Say hi, Kirk. Hi, Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> and what we're doing, we're we're talking about uh, Darwinian evolution in the context of real science, uh, the pitfalls, and whether or not it's actually something something that holds substance, and whether or not there's an argument out there for intelligent design. Now, Kirk, we had talked about a couple of uh, things already uh, relative to uh, science uh, that would be uh, refuting uh, evolution. Um, we talked about spontaneous generation. We talked mm-hmm. about the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Um, I wanted to get a little bit into the law of biogenesis. Okay, I sort of alluded to that when I was talking about germ cells. Mm-hmm. Now, the law of biogenesis states that um, like kind reproduces like kind mm-hmm. okay in other words kirk hastings can reproduce another little kirk hastings okay right. or your dog 
can produce another dog. But it's not going to produce a cat, and it's not going to produce a goldfish. Right. Okay, now the germ cells that we all had at the time we were conceived, really, this goes back to the time of conception, when the organs were being differentiated, the germ cells went to uh, your future uh, organs of reproduction. Okay. Now, when you say germ cells, you're not saying, like, a cold germ. You're When you say germ, you're referring to a basic... Correct. Germinal, it would be a germinal form of cell that would produce a right. certain type of body organ system or whatever. And I'm talking about the germ cells of reproduction. Right. Just wanted not, to make sure not, the audience would understand that. Right. Not an infectious form of a germ. No, right. I'm talking about a reproductive cell line. Basic okay? cells. Yeah. Now, the, the interesting concept here, and I, I think this is a really easy visual for people to get. I think every one of us has gotten one of those wooden... Um, um, doll type things where you open it up. It looks like a gourd, really, but let's say it's got a lady that's painted on it with a dress that's very colorful. Mm-hmm. You open it up, and then there's a smaller version of her inside of the bigger one. Right. And you open that one up, and there's yet a smaller one, and on down right. the line. Uh-huh. So if you open them all up, there's like 10 of them going from the biggest one to the littlest one. Right. Okay, now, any any organism that reproduces itself has a similar circumstance in that the entire line of its future progeny are already predetermined with the germline cell for reproduction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the problem that that evolutionary theory has is that outside influences are predictable. I shouldn't say predictable. They're alleged to predict the, the formation of a new species or a new being. Okay. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that it does not have anything to do with the germline the cell line that's going to uh, affect the future progeny. Mm-hmm. In other words, whatever adaptation that you and I make, whether it's cold weather, hot weather, uh, being one-legged or whatever it is, or, or living in chemical pollution in the next 50 years, mm-hmm. no matter what uh, we can do to adapt, it has nothing to do with the germ line of our future progeny, of our future offspring, mm-hmm. because that there the genetic code is already set in stone. And it reproduces itself one generation after the next. Right. So you would actually have to have that individual adapt and adapt and adapt and adapt with each subsequent generation. There's not. There's no one adaptation that occurs now that will lead you uh, to the future generations having already having that uh, adaptive capability. Right. You with me on that? Yes. Maybe you can explain it a little easier for, to our listening audience. Oh, the way that I've heard that kind of is, I think what you're trying to get at is that. Um, just to use a wild example, like if I were to live the rest of my life in the Arctic and I got hairier as a result to keep myself warm, um, there's, I would not, since that is a, a trait that I developed during my lifetime, that's not a trait I could pass on to my son. He wouldn't be born hairy because adaptive traits are not passed on like that. It would have to be a, a basic uh, change in my DNA, you know, that would be passed on. But that's an adaptive trait is not a basic change like that that can be passed on to children. Right. Now, getting back to microevolution, what we know now is that the small changes in adaptation that are, that are exhibited by, let's say, the, the finch and the length of its beak or the, the peppered moth, they were variations that were already genetically there. Okay, mm-hmm. that were selected for. They had the capability of those changes in them to begin with. That is correct. 
It's simply their environment that caused them to change to determine which uh, adaptive uh, change that they would take advantage of. Right now, if but it I, was already there if to I, some extent. If I can use the uh, the example of the Arctic, you know, you have all of the rabbit population up there. They're white. They blend into the environment. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the brown hair of a rabbit is also part of that genetic uh, makeup. Right. But they they are selected against because if if they're brown on the white tundra, they're going to stick out like a sore thumb, and and sure. the, the predators are going to get them. And the brown rabbits are going to die out. All that's quick. correct. So the white rabbits are the ones that reproduce over and over and over again. But the right. brown the brown hair part is still part of their uh, genetic genetic But if makeup. you bring some of those white rabbits down into a warm climate over a number of generations, you may start getting brown haired babies. That's correct. Because they don't need necessarily need the white hair anymore and they already have that capability in them of brown hair so that would start to come out again correct that's exactly correct right so that that speaks for the uh, pre-programmed response that allows for that uh, microevolutionary process to happen right Really, the example I used of my growing long hair in the Arctic isn't really uh, accurate either. I wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do that. But, you know, some scientists suggest, like, for instance, uh, to take an example, they say that the woolly mammoth, you know, with its long coat that used to exist, that modern elephants are their descendants and that they don't need the hairy coat anymore. Therefore, they've adapted and did away with it. But really that really doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. In other words, what happened probably was there was a species without hair and there was one with hair and the ones with the hair as the climate got warmer, they died out. So you're left with the ones without hair. One didn't change into the other or go back and forth. Right. And there, there really isn't um, any evidence from the fossil record or anything else to indicate that one you know, literally changed into the other. Right. They assume that because of structural similarities, they say, well, this one probably ended up becoming that one. But uh, it's amazing how many times they use words like um, might have or could have, or they use speculative words when speaking about evolution because, in effect, they really don't know scientifically whether it really did that or not. Yeah, and a lot of it is speculation. It is, and it's very based, much. It's based on theory and not uh, not proof. It makes a good story, and it sounds good, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's scientific. Well, that's that's very true. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, irreducible complexity, Kirk. Okay. Now, I had I had the privilege of hearing um, Michael Behe speak uh, back in 1997. It was right after he uh, published. Um, his book. Um, He's kind of the father of irreducible complexity, isn't he? Yes, he is. He came up with that. Yep. He, he is a, concept. Um, uh, a biochemist PhD at Lehigh University. So he's mm-hmm. actually local. He's yeah, local. not too far away. And he took a lot of heat uh, for his, uh, his book. Um, but he makes a very, very good uh, argument in that if you take something that's very complex, like you and me, any complex living organism, mm-hmm. and take one piece of that pie out of it, it ceases to function, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, he's very famous for his mousetrap experiment. Yes. If you take out any one of the component parts of the mousetrap, whether it's the spring 
or the latch or the wooden platform, or anything. Or the cheese like, or anything. It, right. You it take will it, no longer catch mice. It no longer works. Right. Right. Now, the, the point is, is that every piece of a living organism is pre-programmed in advance to a functional endpoint. Mm-hmm. And if you take away any little bit of that piece, then it's not going to be functional and it's not going to exist, or at least it's not going to be. It won't survive. Correct. In right. fact, if you do laser experiments where, let's say you have this, this organism uh, reproducing itself in the laboratory, even if it's a tiny worm of the thousand cells uh, or uh, an amoeba or something like that, and as it's dividing, you, you zap it with a laser in certain spots, one of two things happens. You either have a, a lethal event, mm-hmm. in which case the, the one that's dividing is dead and no longer goes on, right. or it's terribly mutated and non-functional. Right. Let's say it can't swim or it can't propel itself you know, across the microscope slide. Right. But something terrible happens to it if you interrupt the flow of genetic information. Right. So um, we, we do know now that things are irreducibly complex. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's just a different way of arguing uh, that you can't go from a single-celled organism to something that's very complex, like a, a, a living organ, like mm-hmm. the, your liver is a very complicated organ. Right. These processes... Or the brain or the eye or any one of right. dozens and, of different and Darwin's, components. And Darwin spent a number of pages in his, in his book talking about how complicated the eye was and mm-hmm. how it might be one of the downfalls of his own argument. Right. Um, but the eyeball is very complex. Mm-hmm. You take away one component part of the eyeball and you go blind. Right. Okay. Doesn't work anymore. Doesn't work. So and thank we, God that we can't uh, give our adaptive, uh, you know, things that happen to us to our children. Like, for instance, if you were an accident and lost your leg, you know, thank God that your son wouldn't be born with that leg missing. Right. You don't pass on characteristics like that that happen to you in your in a single lifetime. Right. Now we we talk, I I said Michael Behe's book. I don't think I named. Um, the, uh, the the book by name it's uh, um, Darwin's Black Box right so uh, but it's a tremendous book and I would I would recommend any of you who have, who have a scientific uh, mind to look at it it's not terribly complicated if you have a, a high school education and you had some physics and biology and so forth uh, it's it's a read that you'll be able to uh, to manage and he's making the analogy with the black box with the little black box that we have in airplanes that keeps records of what what's happened to the airplane. He's saying that the modern science of microbiology has grown so much since Darwin's day that we have all this information about how we operate on a cellular basis is like the black box to Darwin that he wasn't aware of existed when he came up with his theory of evolution. Yes. But we have since learned all of this. In the last 160 years, the, the complex array of life and all the machinery that governs life, whether it's DNA or RNA, messenger RNA, the ribosomes, the whole, the whole myriad of uh, protein synthesis within the mm-hmm. cell, and the fact that the entire genetic copy of your DNA resides in each and every cell of your body is just phenomenal. There's a whole universe in microbiology that until relatively recently we were totally unaware of. Right. And, and know, Darwin was totally unaware of. And the other, the other thing, uh, Kirk, and a lot of people don't realize this, is that um, evolutionists have never, ever ever been able to explain sexual reproduction. Yeah, that is a tricky one. Now, 
When I've you, always wondered myself, how did both the sexes evolve at the same time in order to make this system work? Correct. And at what level did they have? Did they start sharing their, their um, individual sets of DNA? Uh-huh. In other words, sexual reproduction. When right. did that start? If evolution was true, it would seem to me that everything would repro reproduce asexually, like some simple organisms do. That would make sense from an evolution viewpoint. Right. And you know the 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 last the last point that I wanted to drive home, and and I'm going to frame it in this context. When my son was in ninth grade, um, he was in a debate uh, in his science class. To, uh, one one group took the stance of of intelligent design or creationism, and the other group took the stance of science, okay, and Darwinism, okay. Mm, that must have been interesting. It was, <laughs> and it was judged. And my son, in preparation for this, he said, "Dad, give me." What you think are your strongest arguments for um, for uh, intelligent design or, or creationism? Right. And I basically talk to him about spontaneous generation. Right. I talk to him about the second law of thermodynamics and entropy. Right. We talked about the law of biogenesis. These are all the things that we've talked about thus far. Right. We talked about irreducible complexity. Right. And the last thing I talked to him about was homochirality. Now that's a, a tough molecular science word, but I'm going to explain it to you in this in this way. Please do. <laughs> if you have um, a solution of, let's say, amino acids, okay, you have both right-handed configurations and left-handed configurations that are identical, except that they're mirror images of one another. Right. One is a right-handed form, the other one is a left-handed form, just like if you hold right. your, your two hands out with your two pinkies touching each other, mm -hmm. and your thumbs are pointing away from each other, you've got a right-handed configuration a left-handed configuration right a mirror image mirror image okay so you can have mirror images of amino acids mm -hmm. and it's interesting because the 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 21 or so amino acids that we see in life are all right-handed not left-handed so if you all had, of them if you had a primordial soup of amino acids which ones would come together and make a human being or any other animal for that matter mm -hmm. they would be right-handed amino acids Mm -hmm. Okay, not left-handed, not a mix. Okay, so chiral solutions, both right and left-handed, in life, you get right-handed amino acids only. Mm -hmm. Now, likewise, if you look at DNA, okay, all of the sugar backbones in the DNA molecule, okay, are left-handed, okay? Hmm. Not right-handed, but left-handed. All of them. All of them. So this speaks very, very hard against... That doesn't sound random, does it? No, it doesn't. Folks, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, and we've just given you some uh, good uh, thought uh, for the evidences for intelligent design. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis, and with me is Kirk Hastings. Join us again for next week. And remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Ten twenty on your AM or WIBG.com. We are live radio ten twenty WIBG Ocean City, Summers Point, Atlantic City, South Jersey's cutting edge Christian news talk. Live radio ten twenty WIBG plugging into your life.